0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. This week, we bring you the second part of our conversation with Iranian scholar and researcher Nasser Muhajir about his new book, Voices of a Massacre Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran, 1988. Later in the program, we speak with Laura Bitar, the editor in chief of The Public Source, a Beirut based independent media organization about the economic crisis in Lebanon and the one-year anniversary of the Beirut port explosion that killed more than 200 people. Stay with us. (music) On August 10th, Hamid Nouri, a former prosecutor in Iran, Went on trial in Sweden for his alleged role in the executions of thousands of political prisoners in Iran in the summer of 1988. The historic trial against Nuri will hear testimonies from dozens of witnesses, and it will be the first time that one of the worst crimes of the past 40 years in Iran will be examined in a court of law. In July of 1988, the Islamic Republic of Iran agreed to bring an end. To the brutal eight-year war with Iraq. Over the next two months, under the orders of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini, political prisoners around the country were secretly brought before a tribunal panel that would later become known as the Death Commission, which included Iran's current president, Ibrahim Raisi. The prisoners were not told what was happening and did not know that one wrong answer concerning their faith or political affiliation would send them straight to the gallows. Thousands of men and women were condemned to death and many buried in unmarked mass graves in Khabaran Cemetery in the vicinity of Tehran. In his new book, Voices of a Massacre, Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran, 1988, Paris-based Iranian historian and researcher Nasser Mohajer writes, it is imperative that we prevent the massacre from being consigned to oblivion with history erased and this crime against humanity obscured from the gaze of current and future generations, what was perpetuated yesterday could be attempted against tomorrow. This week I continue my conversation with Mr. Muhajir about the 1988 executions of Iranian political prisoners and efforts to hold the Iranian government accountable for this massacre. There is a section in your book, Past and Present, that you have written an introduction to. And it is an interview with Farooq lotfi the mother of Anushin Lotvi. El-Lotfi. Farooq lotfi uh, passed away in 2019. She was one of the most prominent figures in the movement of Mothers of Havaran. She's revered across the political spectrum because of her continuous struggle for seeking truth and justice. A small framed picture of her son was always hanging around her neck. Her son, Anushiravan Lotfi was imprisoned both under the Shah and the Islamic Republic of Iran. He was executed in 1988, and his grave is in Khavaran. So tell us about Khavaran, where some of these prisoners are buried?
1: It was a, a doomed land in 1982 when they started the first wave of massacre that we talked about. They had to find a place for burying a non-Muslim atheist apostates. According to their understanding of Islam, an atheist should not be buried in a cemetery alongside a Muslim. So, non-Muslim opponents of the Iranian regime or non-Muslim people had to be buried somewhere else. I have written the details of this decision based on uh, what they have uh, themselves revealed about this in different documents, newspapers, interviews that they have made. I have written in detail about how they decide to make this place uh, in the vicinity of Tehran on the road to the city of Sabeh allocate this place for the non-Muslim political prisoners. When the Iranian majlis removed Abu Hassan ibn Isad, the first president of the Islamic Republic, from the presidency, there was a demonstration in Tehran. Different uh, forces, different people, and different uh, thoughts participated in this demonstration, protesting uh, this undemocratic uh, move by the state, And uh, again, this is interesting to mention that uh, right after this demonstration that Pastor on the Revolutionary Guards attacked the demonstrators and killed some and arrest a score of people who were participating in the demonstration, the next day, five o'clock in the morning, they execute seven people. And when they execute them, they say that these were the people who were arrested in yesterday's uh, demonstration. None of them were in the demonstrations. All of them were people, you know, who were in jail for months. And uh, since they wanted to announce the war against all the people, you know, who do not believe in the Islamic Republic and the pro-democracy movement, they say that, okay, these were people, you know, who were in prison. But not everything was in order at the time. So they bury them in Behesh e Zahra, which is the main cemetery of Tehran. And uh, they're there for a few uh, days. But with the establishment of the new line, and as time goes by, they decide that we have to do everything according to the rules that we have made. So those people, uh, seven, who were not Muslims, are moved from beisht zahra to this doomed land, the Khabaran. And they are the first prisoners, non-Muslim, all of the Marxists, Communists who were buried in this new place. And then from then on, all the non-Muslims who were being executed inside jails in Tehran and in Ibn prison, they are carried to this barrier place it's in, important to note that they are not permitted to have a stone grave they are not permitted to plant trees flowers nothing it should be a land all sand stone with no sign of anything and we know that what happened in 1988 with the massacre they actually constructed mass graves and they uh, buried many people in these mass graves. When you're talking about Mother Lutfi, Mother Lutfi finds uh, her son in one of these mass graves. And it's important again to know that this evidence of crime, a crime against humanity, they have done everything to remove all evidence, of their crime from there. At this moment that I'm talking to you, I'm not even sure if their bodies there or not, because they have bulldozed the place so many times, in spite of the movement of the mother of Chavaron, that, uh, okay, leave this place to us, we don't do anything with it, we just try to keep this place, this is the last uh, remnants of uh, our loved ones. And, We will keep it. There was this suggestion that, okay, turn it into a park and let us, you know, have the names of our beloved sons and daughters there. But nothing. They never listened to any of these demands. And what happened was that now we have a piece of land that we don't know what it is. It is like any other piece of land. And we don't know if even a bone is there or not because of what I just described to you, in spite of all these people on the Iranian New Year, the families of um, executed go there, they get together there in different occasions. And
0: And also we should mention that it's not just the um, Khabaran, the Iranian regime has tried to destroy and bulldoze, grave sites in other parts of Iran, including Ahvaz, for example. And there was a report earlier this year that long-persecuted followers of the Baha'i faith in Tehran have been told that they must bury their loved ones on the mass graves of political prisoners.
1: Exactly. Well, you asked me about Khabaran, and that is why I confined myself to Khabaran. Yes. But as you said, you know, all over Iran, You have these uh, so-called cemeteries, bare lands, doomed lands, uh, that political prisoners or prisoners of conscience are buried there. And uh, as you said, again, with the Baha'is, the same. Uh, Since the Baha'is are not Muslims, they cannot be buried in uh, Muslim cemeteries. In fact, next to Khawaran is the main uh, Baha'i cemetery that was created uh, a uh, few months after the revolution, because in the beginning, even the, the Baha'is didn't know what to do with their dead ones. There was such a struggle, you know, to convince the Iranian regime that we must have a piece of land. If you don't ma- permit us to bury our uh, dead in uh, regular cemeteries, we, ha- we must have somewhere to bury. And stories on this subject of Baha'is that were. Dead for so many days, they didn't know where to take them. They were in worse situations. But uh, in spite of all the pressure on the Bahá'í community and on the Bahá'í cemetery next to khabaran Tehran, the Bahá'ís were conscious enough and aware enough not to succumb to the plans of the regime and bury their uh, death in uh, Khabaran respecting Khabarán as it is, and asking for more land for their death.
0: What has been the role of former political prisoners, those who lost their loved ones and ended up living in exile, in exposing and shedding light on what happened and shining light on those dark years? What's been their role? Because 33 years later, we see that one of the members of the debt commission is now the president of Iran, and um, he's not remorseful of his past actions. So what do you see the role of activism in the diaspora and how it has culminated to where we are today? We have seen so many books published. Yours is one of the most comprehensive ones in English, or I should say the first one that goes into details about what happened in the 80s in Iran. So talk a little bit about the public outcry and activism around this issue over the years, and how it got us to where we are today.
1: Well, in diaspora, the month of September, and this is the month that the family of political prisoners in Iran have decided as the month of the Martyrs, that is the name that they have used. In the month of September, There, are, it's now over 20 years that uh, there are ceremonies, memoirs, different activities happen around this issue. And uh, uh, we have tried our best to keep this alive. And uh, really each year, the Awareness about this crime has increased. In the beginning, a minute portion of the society knew about what happened in the summer of 1988. But again, with the efforts of the mother of Khavaran, on the one hand, the political prisoners who left Iran and came and wrote their memoirs and gave speeches and press conferences exposing this crime, with certain opposition forces who really took this seriously, the Iranian human rights uh, activists outside. It has now become a uh, ceremony of a sort, using a very cops down term. It's making a tradition, really. It is now in the month of September. It has become now a more or less tradition to talk about what happened. And each time, each year, We get more information about how this crime happened. Uh, We have more than 150 memoirs. But even though we can claim that we have good prison literature, but still there are so many people who have not uh, talked, uh, who have not written their memoirs, who are not ready to relieve this nightmare because it's not easy to remember such things. It's not easy to write about it. It's not easy to talk about it. But in spite of all the difficulties, now more than ever people know about this national catastrophe in Iran. Mm. The trial of Hamid Nuri would be a, uh, an important event, maybe a watershed, in terms of taking this news to the vast majority of the Iranian people. Because people who knew about this were mainly people who were somehow politically conscious and everything. But now, you know, all these uh, Iranian TVs outside of Iran, radios outside of Iran, they have a good number of listeners in Iran. From the day one of this trial, August 10th, the coverage that has been given to this uh, trial has been really good. Some of the former political
0: prisoners or their loved ones or activists and researchers who are not comfortable with showing up on these Iranian television channels in Europe and in the U.S. have utilized social media to spread their message and their experiences and their testimonies.
1: Exactly.
0: I guess the last question is, what does justice mean for people who are still trying to figure out what happened and what should be done about the perpetuators of those crimes, whether it be persons or the state as a whole. And I think this is a question that you have asked and you have thought about for many years. You have interviewed former political prisoners. Many of those mothers are gone, but they have talked about what they wish to see happen. So can you give us an overview of The spectrum of what justice means to the survivors of these massacres, and also how the society as a whole should deal with this crime in order to be able to move forward and make sure it doesn't happen
1: again. The last chapter of the book, Uh, Voices of Massacre, is about this issue, call for justice. There are three main currents, trends, in the Iranian uh, justice-seeking movement about what justice means in this case. And I have tried to ask more or less the representatives of these three Karens to explain how they envision the future and what they expect to happen. One thing is clear that as long as we have the Islamic Republic of Iran, as long as this regime is in power, we cannot talk about justice, really. We cannot think of commissions, you know, that uh, created in, even in South Africa, I mean, after the change of power, you know, we saw the committee there, or in Latin America. In Tunisia, it is interesting because the power is still there and, you know, they're doing things. In certain countries, it is happening with more or less democratization of the society. Somehow it is related to the democratization. The process of democratization or the degree to which we get to justice has to do with the degree to which the society opens up and prepares itself, announces itself ready to shed light on its dark past. And there is no society that we know of that doesn't have a dark moment, but there must be this readiness to shed light.
0: There are people in Iran who have not shared their stories yet. They're afraid to talk. So I think that's also an important factor.
1: Exactly. But what everybody is asking are very basic demands. Why were they killed? Where are they buried? Many of the political prisoners that were killed, their testament, their last will was not given to their families. The questions are very simple show us their grave, give us their testament, their last will, tell us why they were killed, and tell us why you did that to them and how. These are the very basic questions that people ask now. Who was involved and how they did this and, you know, the decision was made. All these fundamental questions and political questions uh, should be relegated to the regime that replaces this Islamic Republic
0: of Europe. Angela Davis wrote the foreword to the book. She writes as challenging as it has been to begin to tear away the cloak of secrecy. This story of flagrant repression is now clear. While the actual magnitude of the massacre still remains to be confirmed and many more specific details will continue to be revealed Voices of this massacre call out to us. We cannot remain silent. I think that's what needs to be done until we reach that day when we can discuss this freely in a democratic society.
1: Beautiful conclusion. Thank you so much for reading this part. I'm humbled and honored by Professor Davis, also by Professor Judith Butler, Professor Abraham Young, Professor Guntrer, Qayyama Akhaban and Professor Shahzad Mujab, who wrote blurbs for this book. Angela's introduction is moving and talks about things that are very important for a person who wants to read about the history of the massacre.
0: Nasser Mohajer is an independent scholar of modern Iranian history. He has authored many books and written numerous articles on contemporary Iran, including the prison systems of both the Pahlavi dynasty and the Islamic Republic, women's movements for equal rights, and histories of the Iranian left. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. After the blast in the port of Beirut, Lebanon sinks into a severe economic crisis. Electricity, gas, and even medicine are in short supply in the country. Angry residents wait in line for hours to fill their car tanks while others lucky enough to be able to connect to the internet run online campaigns asking Lebanese expats visiting the country for the summer to bring with them the much-needed medicines for loved ones. How did the blast from the Beirut port exacerbate the current economic and political crisis in the country? And what's life today for millions of Lebanese people and for the victims of the port blast and their families? Mira Nabolsi put these questions to Lara Bitar, the editor in chief of the public source, a Beirut based independent media organization
2: dedicated to long form and in-depth journalism in the public interest. Life in Beirut, and Lebanon in general right now is nothing short of a nightmare or hell. Uh, The Lebanese president had warned during a press conference about a year or so ago in response to a journalist uh, who had asked the Lebanese president, where do you think the country is heading? And he just point blank said to her, the country is heading towards hell. And I think this is what we are living through. The economic crisis has impacted everything. And the way we live, the education sector, public health, transportation, there's a very severe fuel crisis because we don't have public transportation. It's made life very difficult. It's made it virtually impossible for people to get to their workplaces, to go buy food, get basic necessities, in addition to the currency that's been devalued by almost 90%. People's salaries have been slashed by half, if not more. Unemployment is skyrocketing, inflation as well. Just kind of to put some things into perspective, the Lebanese lira was pegged to the dollar at a rate of 1,500 to a dollar over the past 30 or so years since the end of the civil war or the beginning of the 1990s. The Lebanese lira on the black market rate today is close to 20,000. If you used to pay for something a dollar now you're paying 10, 15 or 20 dollars for the same item. and obviously salaries have not increased to the contrary, salaries have decreased. Add to that a global pandemic and then also add to that a massive explosion that took place at the port of Beirut on August 4. One of the largest non nuclear explosions in the history of mankind that we still obviously have not recovered from. So, all of that together has made the situation here, has made life here really unbearable, unlivable.
3: I'm going to exactly expand on that area, which is the impact the blast had. Like you were saying, Lebanon was already facing an economic meltdown and an inflation even before the port blast. But, how did it? Exacerbate the economic crisis?
2: I'm going to take you a step first before we talk about the explosion. On October 17, 2019, there was a large uprising, a mass uprising that took place and that continued for several months. At the time, this was at the very beginning of the economic crisis. The currency was already fluctuating a little bit, nothing in comparison to what we're seeing today. But on October 17, Large numbers of people, students from all over the country, these were protests that were countrywide, with a simple demand to transition towards an independent government with legislative powers. An independent government that would be able to kind of navigate us out of this crisis to a certain extent. A government that would be able to make the appropriate decisions, to enact laws and so on, and to, at the very least, have a capital control law that would have reduced the flight of capital that happened in the first few months after the crisis began. At the time, during these mass demonstrations, a lot of people felt very hopeful. A lot of young people in particular who were living in the diaspora were coming back to Lebanon just to be able to participate in these demonstrations. That was the first time in a very long time that people felt that there was some kind of hope, that there was a possibility to have some kind of change in this country. Granted, it might not have been this radical change and a complete overhaul of the system, the sectarian system that exists in Lebanon. But at the very least, people felt empowered and felt that there was a possibility to do something. Now, when the COVID pandemic started, the first lockdown on March 15, 2021, and then the blast on August 4, last year, people's hopes were completely dashed. And the August 4 blast was what broke everything. People felt completely hopeless. And that was the moment in which a lot of people started thinking not of how they could change their country, but how they could flee the country. And this is what we're seeing today. People are no longer invested in this country. Their only hope is trying to escape what is really a nightmare of a situation. The reverberations of the blast are still felt every day. For a lot of people who survived the blast on August 4, they felt like if something like this of this magnitude can happen and no one is held to account and there are absolutely no repercussions, then no one knows what could happen. And as a matter of fact, since August 4 up until today, there's been several other explosions, regular fires just a vast array of different types of violence that we are subjected to on an almost daily basis, not to mention the daily humiliations, the daily indignities of having to hunt for gas, having to hunt for gasoline, most recently shortages in water. Obviously, tap water is not something that we can drink, so we buy bottled water. There's shortages now even in bottled water. And obviously, the reconstruction efforts, which haven't really begun. We don't have a lot of figures because the government is not very interested in a fair and just recovery process, but a large majority of people are still displaced. On August 4, up to 300 people were rendered homeless just on that day. Over 250 people lost their lives. Somewhere between six to eight to 9,000 people were injured. At least 1,000 or 1,200 of those were rendered disabled. And so in the public source, of which I'm the editor-in-chief, we put out a special issue for August 4th to commemorate the one-year anniversary mm-hmm. and to try to talk about all of these issues that people are still facing one year onto the blast. And we noticed, granted, there are a lot of things that we picked up on as we were conducting some of these investigations, when it comes to the reconstruction process, when it comes to people with disabilities, when it comes to the impact that the BLAST has had on the most vulnerable communities in Lebanon, including migrant worker communities, the state is completely absent, is nowhere to be seen. Lebanon for a very long time has been a country that's run kind of by NGOs. And this is what happened in the aftermath of August 4. Had it not been for NGOs and civil society organizations, a lot of people would not have received any kind of support, any kind mm-hmm. of aid, whether it people who were injured or people who had lost their homes. So the repercussions of the blast are still felt every single day by people who are still living with their injuries, with their disabilities, people who are still without homes. People who have lost their businesses and their jobs, their livelihoods, and there's really absolutely nobody that's taking care of them on a consistent basis.
3: I wanted you to take us back to August 4th, exactly one year anniversary of the blast in the port, and tell us more about how people commemorated that day. Just maybe paint a picture of what the streets looked like and what were some of the demands? What did you hear and see on that day?
2: The one-year commemoration was very similar or somewhat similar to the demonstration that took place on August 8th. So a few days after the blast in 2020, people were furious. On August 8th, 2020, people marched down to the street. They were calling for the execution of people who were responsible for the blast. People on that day, it felt like they just have had enough, that they were not able to tolerate or bear one more hardship, one more calamity, one more catastrophe in a country that's regularly enduring all of these things. And similarly, on the one-year anniversary or on the commemoration of the first year, there was that same level of anger, but the numbers had diminished. And as I was saying before, and that's because on one hand, people are hopeless, but on the other, because you get so boggled down with trying to meet the basic necessities and trying to meet the basic needs of your children, your family, uh, your elderly parents. People don't have the same capacity to organize, to be on the street. When you're spending your day just hustling all day long, trying to secure a little bit of electricity, a little bit of gas, some medicine for for a family member who might be ill, that really reduces your ability to face and to confront the state and to be in constant confrontation with the state. Nonetheless, there were tens of thousands of people on August four. And the demand was the same for the resignation of this political class and for the formation of a government that's truly independent, that has no ties with any of the current political parties. And it should be noted that the political parties and most of the major figures that rule this country today are the same ones who fought during the Civil War that started in 1975, ended in 1990. These former warlords are the same people who are ruling the country today. And they have interests in almost everything in the country. They're not just political actors, obviously. They have a hand in businesses. They control the port. They control the airport. They control what's coming in and out. And it's this very close relationship that has allowed them to maintain power over the past 30 years by developing these sectarian clientelist networks that voters eventually have to rely on. And it's just this never-ending loop where they provide their supporters or loyalists to their political parties with meager benefits in order for them to maintain their grip on power.
3: So to hone in a little bit, actually, on the explosion in the port and what happened since. So soon after the blast, the official narrative, or let's say the widely reported narrative, said that the ship was heading to Mozambique and that it stopped in Beirut to load seismic equipment that was supposed to be delivered to Jordan. The government did call for an investigation since. Where is that at? And do people buy this narrative of the government?
2: No, absolutely not. Not to oversimplify things, but the vast majority of people don't buy anything that comes out of the government, any kind of official statement. On the day of the blast, the interior minister came out and promised that there would be a thorough investigation, the results of which would be released within five days. Over a year later, we have not learned anything about this investigation. There's been a few changes of investigative judges. The former one was kind of pushed out. Now there's a new investigative judge that the families of the victims are putting a lot of hope in. And he's been trying to lift the immunity of certain political figures for him to be able to investigate.
3: Do people feel like the judiciary is a little bit more independent in Lebanon?
2: The judiciary is absolutely not independent. It is as corrupt as uh, the political parties that control the judiciary. Nonetheless, there are some people who have a little bit of hope because the new investigative judge is trying to push for an investigation with Mm -hmm. the dog dogs as opposed to people who are just workers at the court and obviously have no involvement. All of the political figures who have been called into an investigation have refused to appear. Most recently, the caretaker prime minister, Hassan Adyab, has refused to appear for an investigation, and so have all of the other ministers and government officials who have been called. The FBI conducted an investigation, so has the French government, but we don't know much of what was revealed, with the exception of a few small, not very significant details. But the question of who exactly brought the ship, why had it been stored for so many years, Why was no one responding to these letters that were raising the issue and saying that this is potentially very dangerous to leave this material, especially the way it was stored as well. So there were a lot of missteps along the way and a year into the blast, we don't really have any concrete answers. There are a lot of conspiracy theories, there are a lot of uh, people who have different ideas of what could have possibly went down, but we don't know anything concretely.
3: Mm-hmm. Do we even know or have an idea today on what might have triggered the explosion? We obviously know that the ammonium nitrate was stored in less than ideal conditions, but was there any more information revealed on what may have triggered specifically that explosion?
2: Again, there are a lot of theories. At uh, the day of the blast, they were saying, you know, because it was stored with firework, that's what triggered the explosion and a bunch of other theories, but none really that have been proven to be factual.
3: And you were beginning to tell us a little bit about the work that you do at the public source. You have compiled a publicly accessible document to try to identify all the victims of the blast, because the government did not recognize all of these victims. Can you talk a little bit more about that and tell us more about the project? So let me start with the project. The public source was first
2: conceptualized in mid-2019. We were anticipating severe austerity measures. We were anticipating an economic crisis. And we wanted to create an independent publication that's able to trace the roots of a lot of these crises here in Lebanon. We often talk about they're all responsible and we complain about things, but oftentimes it's difficult for us to pinpoint who's to blame. So we wanted to create this organization that would be devoted to in-depth, long-form investigative journalism. Investigative journalism is not the only thing that we do, but this is what the publication is dedicated to. And this is the work that we've been doing over the past year and a half. The website includes a whistleblowing platform, and we've been experimenting with a bunch of different things. As for the special issue that we put out on August 4, initially, we did not intend to create a publicly accessible list with the names of all of the victims. We simply sent the Ministry of Health a simple access to information request. What in the US would be called the freedom of information request, asking just for the names mm-hmm. of FOIA, oh yeah. asking simply for the names of the people who were killed in the blast. When we did not get a response, we started knocking on a lot of other doors, seeking this information from different government institutions, and nobody wanted to give us that information. So we decided to compile it ourselves. When you read news reports or even official documents that are coming out of the Lebanese government. Oftentimes they'll just say over 200 people or over 204 people and occasionally over 217 people. So what we did, we compiled a lot of the lists that were already out there and we scanned media reports to get names of people who were killed and so on. And the list that we came up with was over 250 people were killed. And this is a living document that we're hoping our readers and others who were impacted by the blast would help us verify. And this list, unfortunately, kept growing. Even on the one-year anniversary, one person, a pharmacist who had been in a coma for, for exactly a year, died on the one-year anniversary. So on the day that the list was released and during the night we had to update it.
3: But why is it that the government doesn't recognize everybody that actually died as a result of the explosion?
2: This is just an assumption, but the government will eventually face lawsuits, will have to pay monetary compensation. The monetary compensation that the state is offering now is negligible especially in light of the devaluation of the currency. So I think on one hand, there's the financial component, on the other, the legal, that possibly the government does not want to subject itself to by recognizing how many people had died, mm-hmm. or I should say how many people the Lebanese state killed.
3: I was under the impression that people who may have not been inside the port, so maybe people who live nearby, and may have died as a result were not recognized. Am I mistaken? The blast
2: was felt almost 12 kilometers away from the epicenter of the blast at the port. Granted, about 50 or 60 people had died at the port, but a lot of people in neighborhoods surrounding the port had also perished. So it doesn't really have anything to do with the fact of people dying in the port versus outside of the port. Because the blast was so powerful and impacted neighborhoods quite removed from the area around the port.
3: And the team at The Public Source as well documented the experiences of many people who were injured by the blast. And as with those killed, many were also not recognized by the government or not included in official lists, let's say, But many were left with permanent disabilities and a lot of physical and psychological damage that they may live with until the end of their lives. Yeah, for sure.
2: Uh, So to this day, the Ministry of Health recognizes that 150 people had permanent disabilities as a result of the blast. While we were talking to disability rights activists and other people who were injured, and in particular, the one organization that advocates for people who are permanently disabled from the Lebanese civil war and has been active over the past 20 or 30 years, we realize that that figure is also significantly higher. And their estimates is somewhere between 800 to um, 1,200 people with permanent or temporary disabilities, but the majority of them with permanent disabilities. So these are people who lost their eye, lost a leg, are no longer capable of working, are no longer independent, can't move around freely, and so on. We decided to focus on this question of disability justice because it's such an overlooked issue in Lebanon. And because of countless people who were disabled during the civil war and who continue to live on the margins of society, we kind of did not want to see that being repeated in the aftermath of the blast. We wanted to highlight the importance of advocating on behalf of people with permanent disabilities. And this is why, in particular, we focused on this issue.
3: I wanted to also talk a little bit about the city itself. Beirut obviously is well known for it being a cultural, intellectual, a very vibrant city. What's the city like? How much of the city and obviously the port were actually reconstructed? What does it feel like, thinking about kind of the space and how it changed for people?
2: The city itself, there is no reconstruction efforts yet. There are some private firms, including German, French, Russian, and Chinese firms, who are trying to get a contract to reconstruct the port and the neighborhoods surrounding it that were damaged by the blast, but nothing has started yet. So most of the reconstruction efforts that have happened have been in individual homes. So people whose balconies were destroyed, kitchens, bathroom, and so on. So these have all been individual efforts, but there's nothing that's happening on the state, on the level of the state as far as the city is concerned, for people who know Beirut, Beirut is a city that's adored by Arabs and by others. They would be shocked to see the state that Beirut is in today. It is a city that is a shell of its former self. At night, it's pitch black because there's no electricity. Traffic lights have been off for many months now. There are no street lights. A lot of businesses have shattered. There aren't a lot of people out and about on the street. Beirut has been a city, at least in which I felt safe to a certain extent, being out by myself as a woman at three o'clock in the morning. That is no longer the case. The city is becoming increasingly frightening. And the poverty rate in Lebanon right now is at 78%. For Palestinian and Syrian refugees, it's close to 90%. As I said before, rising unemployment public health sector in complete disarray, it's really quite tragic what's happened to Beirut.
3: Let's talk a little bit about what type of justice do people want to see, especially those mostly impacted, especially those that lost family members or who became disabled as a result of the blast. How do people articulate what they're looking to see, hopefully in the near future? It's really sad because
2: our expectations are so low in this country. And I'm just going to refer to the families of the victims who have been on the street or on the street on the fourth of every month. They just want to know how their kids or how their family, members, loved ones died. There isn't any fancy Bay Area type of transformative justice or restorative justice or so on. We're not close to even having these conversations of what this justice really looked like. We are at such a low and simple level of just wanting to know what happened, who can potentially be held accountable, even if accountability will look like a slap on the wrist, but just to know why did this event take place? Right now, this is the primary demand. And obviously, eventually, for you know, the families want the perpetrators of this obscene crime to be held to account, to go to jail, to face some kind of consequence. But I think we're so far removed from any concept of real justice or real restitution for the victims of the blast. And day after day, it seems like the investigation is not really gonna go anywhere. Right now, the political class is preparing itself for the elections as if nothing has happened. Life goes on. They continue to accumulate vast amounts of wealth by exploiting these different crises. And uh, it's hard to imagine a different outcome if we don't have anything short of a real revolution that is capable of toppling the Lebanese oligarchy. This is, I think, the only thing that could potentially save this country from an even worse fate. Because even today, we know this is not the worst that's going to happen to us. In the coming months, the situation is going to deteriorate even further. And this is something that a lot of people here say that this is just the beginning. The beginning is an absolute nightmare, let alone what's going to happen in a few months. And everybody is expecting the worst.
3: I know there were some demands, and I don't know really how much public support there is for the UN Human Rights Council to launch an investigation or work with local authorities. Do you feel like there's support for something like that for more international bodies to get involved in investigating and potentially holding those responsible to account? There are
2: two primary actors who are pushing for international investigation. The first one is the human rights organizations, local and international, like Human Rights Watch and so on. And the second one is the kind of actor that has political motivations, political ambitions, without getting into too much detail. Personally, I feel like we should have learned our lesson from the Special Tribunal for Lebanon and The special tribunal for Lebanon was the one that was set up a few years after the assassination of the former Prime Minister, Rafi Al-Halidi. An incredible amount of money was spent on that tribunal. It didn't really go anywhere. It was a waste of time, of effort, of resources. So repeating that mistake, in my opinion, is pointless. Mm -hmm. Families of the victims do also call for an international investigation because they don't believe that a local investigation will amount to anything, and they're right. It won't amount to anything. So there are certain people, certain actors in Lebanon that would like to see an international investigation, but so far that hasn't gained any traction.
3: Before we close, I wanted to ask you, how would you describe basically the situation in Lebanon in a way that goes beyond perhaps this whole rhetoric around corruption and negligence? It almost seems to me like somebody observing from outside, like this becomes almost a political choice, a deliberate policy to just preserve the political class and system.
2: You're absolutely right. It goes much beyond just corruption, run-of-the-mill corruption that happens everywhere and not just here and even in the U.S. and in Western countries, Um, or just simply negligence. The roots of a lot of these crises that Lebanon is going through can be tied back to capitalism, to this neoliberal model or neoliberalism on steroids that the former, the assassinated prime minister in the early 1990s forced On Lebanon, who built an economy that's essentially built on debt and nothing else. There are no productive sectors in Lebanon. It was just this accumulation of debt over the years that at a certain point became unsustainable. It became impossible to maintain the economy on this model. And I think a lot of these crises that we see, and we can trace also some things back to the 2015, there were large demonstrations in 2015 after there was a garbage crisis. Mm -hmm. And even at the time, and this was the first time that people were starting to realize that this is not a garbage crisis, that this is a crisis of capitalism. This is a crisis that can be traced back to the economic policies that were imposed on Lebanon in the early 1990s. So to really simplify that, I think this is ultimately what it boils down to. Well, Lebanon, obviously, in the global south, is not the only country that's enduring the consequences of these economic policies. We're one of many. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to have any kind of links or ties of solidarity with other countries in the global south or anywhere else. It does feel like Lebanon is really isolated because it's seen or the crisis is perceived as a locally manufactured crisis that is difficult for activists and organizers outside of the country to really grapple with or to be in solidarity with the struggles that are happening here locally. But I think there is potential for people here and elsewhere to be connecting on these larger issues and on these economic policies that are wreaking havoc to all of our lives.
3: I know I heard observers say, if you want to see the future of the world and many countries in the world under the capitalist and neoliberal system, then look no further than Lebanon, because the future, as grim as it is, may be the future that we see in many parts of the world as well, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just going to say Lebanon or maybe Chile, because back in 2019,
2: our demonstration started on October 17th. Theirs, they had this mass uprising that started on October Mm 18th. And there are a lot of parallels. As far as I recall, theirs started over public transportation fare increase of maybe 30 pesos or something like that. ours started over regressive taxation. So I I think we can make this parallel to a lot of other countries around the world and hopefully at a certain point be able to be in true solidarity with each other to get out of this uh, calamity in a lot of ways. Climate catastrophe, uh, there are a lot of ways, there are a lot of means for our struggles to intersect.
3: You were talking about how the everyday difficulties, you know, lack of electricity, gas, and so on, just make the everyday life very difficult for people and obviously harder for social movements to sustain themselves and continue. But what do you foresee in the future, especially when it comes to social movements and movement of protests throughout the past couple of years? And even before the blast, I know what we give is a pretty grim picture, but Um, There's always room for hope.
2: To be completely frank, I see no hope at all. But if you'd like for us to end on a hopeful note, I would say we've been subjected to shock after shock over the past two years. Explosions, forest fires the economic collapse and so on. I think once the situation stabilizes to a certain extent, once people start to breathe a little bit, because they can kind of acclimate to the situation, their lives regain some sort of routine, and we know what to expect and the conditions that are imposed on us, I think at a certain point, people can start to organize again. Because right now, we just have to constantly respond to these shocks. We have to constantly adjust our lives, our schedules, our way of operating, our ways of relating to each other and being with one another. I think once that settles down, and granted, once that settles down, the situation is going to be 10 times worse. But I think at that, at a certain point, we'll be able to regain some of the strength that we had back in 2019 and earlier and start really organizing again.
0: Laura Bitter is the editor-in-chief of The Public Source, a Beirut-based independent media organization dedicated to long-form and in-depth journalism in the public interest. She spoke with Mirana Bulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week.
1: Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer our media partner is a status hour podcast you can find us on twitter at vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on itunes or soundcloud at voices of the middle east and north africa you can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com please join us next week for another edition of voices of the middle east and north africa and thank you for listening